If you have your Bibles, open them up. We're ready for Exodus chapter 10 tonight. Actually, beginning in chapter 9. So again, I, I often start our Old Testament study on Wednesday nights with this little spiel. So you guys have heard it, so I'll keep it short. But I, I just never want you to forget that Jesus said, and he, he on the road to Emmaus, he, he found these two gentlemen, and it says that he took them back, and beginning at Moses, he showed them all the things in the book concerning himself. So as we read the Old Testament, one of the, the goals that we have is we want to find, knowing that Jesus said that he himself is in the pages and on the pages of the Old Testament. And and so it, it's about Jesus. And, and as we study and read the word, and we have a saying here that I, I think is life-changing and profound and powerful, and it's, it's yet very simple at the same time. But I've seen it work in people's lives over and over and over again, and that is read your Bible and pray every day. And, and it, as you, and if you read your Bible and pray every day with the goal of connecting to God and, and getting to know Jesus, and it's not a, it's not a check in the box. It's not a, it's, and even if, let's say, even if it is or becomes, and sometimes, you know, I do it and it's, it's, a, it's, it's work at times. You know, I got a big section I got to cover today to, to stay with my daily reading and, you know, for whatever reason, but just getting it done is fruitful. But when you really slow down and you, you, you desire to connect with God through that, it'll change your life. It, it really will change your life. And so um, as you go through this, and we highlighted last week where Pharaoh is a type of Satan. And some of the things that Pharaoh mentions to Moses, as we went through last week, Moses went to Pharaoh. And we're going to read tonight in the beginning that the seventh, seventh time Moses is going to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And as we progress... Um, Pharaoh is offering Moses all of these compromises. Well, just compromise in this area. Okay, go, but, but don't go very far. Go, but come back quickly. Go, but don't bring the, the women and children. Go, but don't bring the livestock. And, and all of these compromises along the way, and every one of them represent, and, and they illustrate a spiritual truth that Satan tries to put in your life. And basically, we talked about last week where we were half-stepping. We're, we're, we're not fully sold out for Jesus Christ, Christ. For whatever reason, we're not just out there. We wear it on our sleeve. We wear it in our lives. And it's a badge. And it's evidence to the whole world. We're unashamed that we're, we're Christian. And we love Jesus. And, and we're bold in that. And we make these compromises in our life. And these same compromises that, that Pharaoh, which represents Satan, um, that, that he, he offers to Moses, those same spiritual truths are, are apparent and valid in our life today. And we want to be careful from any of those compromises because any of those compromises will set you back. And I want to tell you honestly, as we do church and as we grow, the, the, the biggest thing that you, as I watch, and we watch people come to Christ and, and get saved or, or, or come back to Christ or, or, or walk with Christ, but they're nominal and there's no fruit in their life and, and they don't really grow and they, they, they struggle through their, their Christian walk with spiritual growth, you, you can pretty much identify in their lives these compromises. And Jesus tells us in the New Testament, actually more concise and, and, and easier to understand in the parable of the sower and the seeds and the four seeds go out and the four different types or the seeds go out and the four different types of soil that they fall on. And the one that, that probably best describes where we are in the church today is, is the seed that represents um, materialism 
or um, where, where we're, the cares of this world is what it's called. And, and because of the cares of this world, one of the things I see more, so often in church, and I've seen it over the years and years and years, somebody comes to Christ. They, they have a social network of friends that, that they've been with for a long time and they love. But that social network of friends doesn't want nothing to do with Christ. And they haven't made a commitment, nor do they believe in Christ and, and, and are not even saved. And yet they, they start coming to church and God does something miraculous in their heart. But the cares of this world and that, that circle or that group, that social group that they belong to, they, they, they want to stay a part of it. And they have to compromise enough to stay in that social group that, that Christ can't be preeminent in their lives. Christ can't dominate their lives and everything that they do and be who they identify as first is as a Christian because when they're in this circle, they have to do as, as, as Pharaoh suggests to Moses where you, you do it, but you, you don't go all out. You don't sell out and, and, and you just you keep it in the closet and you don't let it affect these other areas of your life as, as, as Pharaoh suggests to Moses. And I see it so often. And then there becomes this struggle in, in, in the lives of Christians where we have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And, and that foot in the church makes us uncomfortable in the world. And that foot in the world makes us uncomfortable in the church. And, and we, we live this just struggle life, just struggling all the time. And, and God doesn't want you to be there. And there's so much joy and there's so much victory in just being sold out for Jesus Christ and who you are. And just being sold out to, to being identified and your identity has to be in Christ. Has to be number one in who you are and being bold in those things. And if that means you remove yourself from that social circle, if that means that you don't go to the bar, you don't go to the party, you don't get invited, eventually you, you're going to get kicked out of that group once, once you start those things. And they're, they're even going to get offended like you betrayed them. It's the price of following Jesus. But I tell you what, the reward, the upside is so much better. And Jesus himself, he said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cause division. And, and, and you're going to lose mother and father and brother and sister for my namesake. And, and you have to be willing to, to, to understand that that's part of the cost. Now, I've done it. You know, it's been a long time now, praise God. And I don't have that struggle anymore. But I had a circle. I, I had a social network of, of people that... I don't know how to describe it, but we, we, we went through tons of real life things where like, you know, one of us was going to die if the other one didn't stand in the gap and, 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 and fight and, 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 and be there for one another. And, and it was, it was deep, you know, and, and I had to leave it and, and they got their feelings hurt and they didn't like me. And a lot of them didn't, wouldn't come to my wedding three and a half years later from the time I became a Christian to the time I got saved. And, you know, and, and it was a long time ago. I understand I was a kid. I was 20 years old, but, you know, I've done it. And, and I had to leave it, and I understood I had to leave it. So um, let's pick up, and again, with, with, with the mind frame that, that, that Pharaoh here represents Satan, and he represents some of the um, 
compromises that Satan is going to put in your life and mine. And so as I read it, I encourage you guys read along with me. If you have it on your phone, on your Bible, in your lap, you know, and maybe there's something that I won't point out, but as you read what Pharaoh says, or you read the situation, the Holy Spirit ministers something that's personal to your life that, that, that you understand or something that God has already been convicting you on and telling you and calling you to change or step out in or step up in. And, and, and God's Holy Spirit will minister to you just as we read the scriptures. So uh, chapter nine is actually where we're going to pick up today. And it says, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, the Lord God of the Hebrews. I love that. Let's Let's underline that real quick. Let my people go that, that they may serve him. Do you know that the Bible says that, um, men are supposed to make the coffee? Hebrews, <laughs> for if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on the ca- on your cattle in the field and on your horses and on the donkeys and on the camels and on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die that belongs to the children of Israel. So we, we highlighted last week in the first plagues that the, each of the plagues demonstrates God's superiority, his dominance over the gods that the Egyptians would have served. And so cows are sacred in Egypt and, and these animals are sacred. There was a particular God that, that was represented by, the, um, by a bull and, and, and also by a cow. Hathor, the cow goddess, Apis, the bull god, which represented to the the Egyptians the gods of safety and health. And and so the safety and health gods represented by the bull, the strong bull and the cow, this large animal, they're going to become sick. These animals are going to become sick. They're going to receive, get a disease. Um, It's described as murian in the Bible, murian, M-U-R-R-I-A-N, murian, murian in the Bible is this disease that these animals will receive. And, and, you know, the, the uh, bull is a very, you'll see it often and, and kind of off topic just a little bit. But in the Tower of Babel, the, the, the God of the Tower of Babel, which was a man that was worshipped to his, um, the beginning of the Babylonian religious system in, he, in, in Genesis chapter 6, he's represented by a, a bull. That's, that's the symbol for, for that, that, that God is the bull. And then um, what's interesting in this particular plague is that God says that the, the livestock of the, of the Hebrews will not be harmed or hurt. Turn with me, if you would, real quick to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. You know, in the book of Revelation, and, and we, we briefly touched on this a couple weeks ago, but, but again, as we look at the Old Testament and we look at typology and we look at different types of symbols in the Bible, for example, um, the Bible says that Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. So Enoch would represent, anyone take a wild guess what Enoch would represent a picture of? Who? The church or what's going to happen to the church, which is the... The rapture. So Enoch is a picture, an Old Testament picture of the rapture. That's what's going to happen to you and I. We're not going to die. Was that presumptuous? 
<laughs> Maybe a little. Let, let's put it this way to be politically correct or scripturally correct. Um, the generation that is alive during the rapture is going to be like Enoch. They're not going to face physical death. They're going to walk with God and God is going to take them. And, and we studied it on Sunday and he's going to take them where? Where are we going to meet him? In the clouds. Amen. Somebody learned something on Sunday. We're going to meet him in the clouds. And, and, and so that generous. So Enoch is being a type of the rapture. And then, but within that picture, we have the flood shortly after. But in the flood, we have Noah and, and his family that they went through that tribulation. They were not taken from the tribulation, right? So Noah and his family are a picture of, anybody want to take a guess? Of, of the nation of Israel or of the Jews. Because when the church is raptured, the nation of Israel is going to go through the great tribulation. And, and so you have a picture of the, the nation of Israel which goes through. And again, as you guys know, I'm very staunch pre-trib. And, and, and I think one of my biggest um, um, mantras for that is the fact that the, the last seven years is about Israel. It's not about the church. I think it's arrogant for the church to think that, that, the, that the tribulation period is about us. It's not about us. And we're not as, you know, escapists and, and wimpy, wimpy Christians who just want to escape all those troubles as, as some would accuse us pre-tribulation rapture guys of being. Jesus himself said, pray that you would escape all these things that are going to come on. If Jesus says to pray, you're going to escape it. Well, then sign me up. I'll pray that I would escape it. But it's not about Israel. The prophetic model is Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks of Daniel, which represent a prophetic model, 69 fulfilled, one yet future. We call it the 70th week of Daniel or the seven-year great tribulation period, and it's Jewish. It's, it's about Israel. So as we look at typology in the Old Testament, we're, we're going to see examples of both. Something that might be an example of the church that was taken up like Enoch, of Noah who goes through the great tribulation. But one of the biblical principles that we're going to see here in 2 Peter is that God, the Bible says, this is one of the keys. God is able to preserve the righteous from the, from the wicked. God is able to preserve those that he wants to preserve during the time of tribulation. And so as, um, as we see in the book of Revelation, this is what's going to happen. The church is removed. And when the church is removed... You know, it used, to, it used to say, the Bible says that, that when, the, when, the, um, when the Holy Spirit or when the, 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 the restraining power is removed, meaning at the rapture, that the restraining power is going to be removed. And so some would have thought, well, that means the Holy Spirit's going to be removed off the face of the earth at the, at the rapture. But that's just not possible. It's, it's, not, it's not what the scripture teaches, nor can all of those events, those supernatural, amazing events happen on planet earth without the Holy Spirit. It's just God's not going to remove the Holy Spirit from the earth. But what, what that is, it's the Holy Spirit working through the church. And really, God, God could save people uh, 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 by using angels. You know, people want signs and wonders. I mean, if you can imagine an angel flying through the sky right now proclaiming the gospel, how effective that would be. I mean, I'd become a Christian. Uh, and yet God doesn't do it. He, he uses you and I. He chooses to use us, but there's going to come a day when the church is removed that, that he's going to raise up a different faction. And many people, there, there's three groups of elect people in the, in the, in the Bible that, that because that term, the elect, came up on Sunday. And the church is one of the group of the elect. The, the nation of Israel is elect. And the tribulation saints are those people who are going to get saved during that seven-year period. 
Now, many people are going to die. But there will still be salvation happening during that last seven years. And God is not going to have the church as an avenue to share the gospel during that time. So it tells us in Revelation that God is going to raise up 144,000 Jewish virgin male evangelists who, who are going to proclaim the everlasting gospel. That's one thing. He is then in the seven-year period, the Bible tells us, going to fly an angel through the, through the skies proclaiming the everlasting gospel. So you have 144,000 Jewish evangelists. You have angel flying through the sky. And then you have one more wonderful witness at that time. You know what the last one is? The two witnesses in the book of Revelation, Moses and Elijah, who are going to be standing in Jerusalem, performing miracles and proclaiming the everlasting gospel. And many, many, many will get saved. But you know, of that 144,000, and during the great tribulation, what's going to happen? I mean, read it, right? We studied it not that long ago. Read, read Revelation 6 through 19. It is hell on earth, literally. And, and, and it says at the very beginning part of the tribulation part, uh, period, a third of mankind is going to die in the first part of it. That's a lot of people. Minus the church number, it's still a number that's a billion. People are going to die. And yet, you know, you know what's going to happen to 144,000 through all of those calamities and disasters and wars and rumors of all of those, not more, no more rumors, the wars and the pestilence and famines and earthquakes and natural disasters and hail and locusts and the 144,000 at the beginning, you know how many of them make it to the end of that? 144,000. Not 139,992. Eight of them didn't make it. No. All of them are going to make it. Why? Look at Second Peter chapter 2, verse, verse number 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. One more time, verse number 9. And the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially for those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanliness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed, and not afraid to speak evil of glories. I think of some of these atheists that, that are on TVs and YouTube channels who have no problem speaking adverse things against um, glories. And so um, let's go back, that, let's go back to, to Exodus. So we see this biblical principle that, that God knows how to preserve the, the, the godly in times of tribulation. He's going to preserve the 144,000. He's going to preserve Moses and Elijah even after they kill him. God's going to raise them up. And, and so um, God is able to preserve. And here in this story, it's very fascinating that all these, this, this, this sickness, this plague, this bubonic plague that affects animals only, that this um, Murian disease that goes through Egypt, it doesn't affect the animals in Goshen where the Hebrews are. Because God protects them and God, God, God preserves them during this time. And again, I've shared with you before, you, you, you can go on, on Google and you will find story after story after story of science and, and professors and, and atheists and everybody else who will go through these stories and explain every one of them away um, by natural means. Now, now one of the principles that, that is valid is that God will and can and often does 
do things um, supernaturally by natural means. You follow that? He naturally does the supernatural. So in the locust plague that we're going to see, God's going to bring a big wind that's going to come along. And this wind is, which is how locusts would be brought in mass numbers, this wind is going to, east wind is going to blow the locusts onto the land. So you could look at the out, you could looking from the outside and say, well, yeah, there was a big, huge wind that came and, and the locusts came. Even as you get into the, um, the, the book of Revelation, what you find in the book of Revelation it is if somebody wants to see a lot of those things just as natural disasters, they will be able to. Because God is going to do the supernatural very naturally. God is going to do the supernatural very naturally. And you could, if you wanted to, an earthquake. You could say, oh, that's just fault. The plates shifted and we had an earthquake. Or you could say, God pushed them and we had an earthquake. It's wherever your perspective is, but... Um, but, but God oftentimes does that. But within that, there are just supernatural, bona fide miracles that cannot be explained away. And this is one of them. And, and we'll see those um, throughout this whole story. And then especially culminating in the, in the last plague. How is it that, that the angel of death comes through Egypt and kills every firstborn except for the children of Israel or except for those? He would have even killed the children of Israel had they not been obedient and put the, the blood of the lamb upon the doorpost in the place of a cross. And so we don't get that detail. I don't think it would be safe or fair to assume that, that no Israeli or Hebrew children were killed because if they were disobedient in their walk, just like it wouldn't be safe to say if somebody who comes to church all the time and associates themselves with, with church and Christ, who's never surrendered or committed their heart to Christ, that they're not going to be lost as well because salvation you know, that's going to affect and come in their house just as easy. And so in verse number eight, I actually, I never read seven. It says, then Pharaoh sent and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelis was Israelites was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh became hard and he did not let the people go. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take for yourself handfuls of ashes from the furnace and let Moses scatter it towards the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh, and it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt, and it will cause boils to break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward the heaven, and they caused boils to break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. You notice in the sixth plague, no warning. In, in the fifth plague, there, there's quite a conversation going on between Pharaoh and Moses before he unleashes this fifth plague. In the sixth plague, God just says, go get the ashes and, 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 and rise them up into that... Um, um, the thing. And once again, with, with the boils, the Egyptians, in order to worship any of their gods, they had to be clean. And they had to be physically clean as well, as you couldn't be sick, you couldn't have the flu, you had to wait till you got better and were clean um, to be able to worship. And so with boils, they would have not been able to worship their gods. And so another affront against all the gods of the, um, of the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses... Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of, he, of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all of my plagues to your, to your very heart and, all, and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. 
Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. And yet you exalt yourselves against my people and that you will not let them go. go. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause a very heavy hail to rain down such as not had been in Egypt since the founding until now. And therefore send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field. And so he, he's going to call for, God is going to bring a hail that, that is never, that's unprecedented in, in Egypt's history. And, and so again, that, that's consistent with the, the times of the, 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 the great tribulation. And in the great tribulation, Jesus said, and it's described for us, that those times will be um, worse than, than ever was before in human history. The calamities, the disasters, unparalleled in all of human history. And all of human history would include the flood of Noah, which killed everybody but eight people. And so, but it'll be so terrible and disastrous that Jesus said it'll be unparalleled in human history. And that's what Moses is going to say about this um, seventh plague. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, for the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is in the field is found in the field and it is not brought home and they shall die. And he who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestocks in the field. Are you guys feeling that? Verse 21 and 20 and 21. He who feared the Lord obeyed. He who did not fear the Lord did not obey. And what was the result? Those that didn't fear the Lord, there, there, there was death and, and there, was, there was famine, there was problems. You know, um, Jesus says in, um, in John chapter 3, if you want, you can turn there with me really quick or you can just hang out and I'll be right back. But in John chapter 3, and obviously John chapter 3 is important because in John chapter 3 is where Jesus said, um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we know John 3.16. And I oftentimes ask people, and so I think it's important that you, our church, know the answer to this question. Who was Jesus talking to in John chapter 3 when he said those words? That's your cue. Go ahead. Lydia? Oh, she's not here. You guys are out of luck. Nicodemus. was talking to Nicodemus. And so he's having a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. Nick at night. The guy that came to Jesus at night. So Nick at night. And, and, and Jesus says, look at, look at verse 14. It says, and, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You realize Jesus said that multiple times in, in John chapter 3, and we, we highlight 16, but Jesus actually said it multiple times. So Jesus said again, verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What does that mean? What did Jesus mean right before he said that, that you must be born again? When he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent. So what, what, first of all, what's cool is that Jesus, whenever Jesus highlights a story in the Old Testament... It just gives it such credibility, such bond. Like, you know, it's real. It's true. It happened. Jesus testified of it. He was there. He knows it. He, he wrote it. He created it. And, and there's this story in, in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. I don't have the, I think it's in Numbers 21. That's just off the top of my head without having a note here. Um, it's probably in your margin somewhere in verse 14. What does it say? 
Numbers 21. So in Numbers 21, there's this, there's this story where the, the nation of Israel is sinning. And, and the snakes come through the, 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 the nation of Israel as a judgment of God and they bite the people. And, and anybody who has this, this snake bite is going to die. And, and so the people go to Moses and they say, you know, entreat the Lord for us that he would heal us. And so Moses goes to God and he says, God, will you heal the people? And God gives Moses instructions. He said, Moses, I want you to go and, ri- and raise up a serpent in the, in the wilderness. A- and anybody who looks upon it will be healed. Now, you know, like on the side of an ambulance, that, that kind of medical symbol that has what looks like a snake wrapped around it? That, that comes from the Bible. That, that's, a, that's a symbol of healing that we use in medicine today that comes from that story in Numbers 21 that Jesus references in John chapter 3. And the story would have went something like this. Moses, you know, and that, that symbol later became a problem because people were worshiping it. And Moses said, Nahushtan, a thing of brass. And like, it's, it's nothing. It's a thing of brass. It's not a God. But as, as Moses would have erected this thing, the people would have had to come off of their sick beds, go to the center of, of, of town, of city, of camp, and look at this serpent. And by looking at it, they would have got healed. Now, again, what a beautiful picture, right, of, of salvation. What a beautiful picture of us coming to the cross because we have to come and look at Jesus. We have to come by faith and believe that just by receiving Jesus, we're going to be healed of our sins and cured and, and, and forgiven and washed clean of our sins. A picture of salvation and a picture that requires faith and a real story in the Old Testament. But without a shadow of a doubt, you can just imagine some grumpy old codger in his tent and his wife comes running in and she says honey you need to go out and moses um, erected a serpent in the middle of town and if you in the middle of camp and if you just go out and look at it you'll be healed and he'd say look at a brass serpent i'm dying here i need medicine i need a doctor you want me to go look at some pole what's wrong with you woman get out of here and would have died would have died in his unbelief would have died in his skepticism of doing what God told him to do. And Jesus mentions this story. We're going to have it. Um, we have it here with the animals. We're going to have it again very shortly when God is going to tell now his own people to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and place it over the doorpost of the house. And the angel of death is going to come through at night and he's going to enter every house without that without the blood of the lamb, and he's going to wipe out every, everything in the house that's, that's firstborn. And again, there would have been those that, that just, I don't get it. It just doesn't make sense. What do you mean? Just believe in Jesus and I go to heaven? Just receive Jesus as, as Savior and I go to heaven? It's too simple. It doesn't make sense. I need, a, I, need a, I need proof. I need evidence. I need concrete, scientific devotion. There's some raging atheist that... that you know, is, is very popular and written books and has TV programs and radio programs. And, you know, that's always his premise. Pre- present evidence that God exists. And if I could see the evidence, I'll believe. The evidence is in your heart. The evidence is in faith. And, and you know what's the cool thing? Once you, once you put your faith, once you go out and you look at that pole that Moses erected in the, in the camp, guess what happens? You get healed. You get touched. When you put that blood of, of, of the cross over the doorpost of the house, the angel of the Lord passes over your house and something miraculous and amazing happens. And so back to Exodus. 
And in verse 22, it says, so again, the, the word of God says those who feared the Lord, they, they won. They, they figured it out. And those who didn't, their animals died. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the heaven, that there may be a hail in all of the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail. And the fire darted to the ground, and the Lord rained hail out of the land of Egypt. Have you guys ever been in a huge hailstorm? Pretty, pretty impressive, right? Or even a huge rainstorm. I mean, it is just raining so hard. It's loud, and it's, you know, it's, it's almost like fun, you know, as long as something destructive is not happening or something terrible. But, you know, can, can just imagine being an, a witness to this, this kind of storm and what the power and the awe would have been of the noise. I mean, it killed, it killed cows, you know? Cows go to Montana to die and to Egypt with hailstorms. So there was hail and fire mingled with, with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout all the land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, and hail struck every herb of the field and broke every, every tree of the field. And again, there is a parallel in the book of Revelation where um, one of the plagues that hail will, will fall from the heaven that will be softball size hail, 100-pound hailstones that will be 10 times that size. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt and all that was in the field, both man and beast, and hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree in the field. And only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. So once again, God delivered the righteous and delivered the godly out of, out of the, the tribulations. Because in Goshen, remember Goshen, that's where the Israelites were, no hail. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron. And he said to them, I have sinned this time. Oh, really? This time? What about the last six times? The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. So, so Pharaoh is starting to feel the, um, feel the burn. No pun intended, please. He's, he's, he's finally starting to weaken a little bit, soften a little bit, that, that it's starting to break him. And he was very difficult to break, Pharaoh was. He had a very hard heart. And as he continued to harden his heart, and then God established that heart, but here's the first symptom or sign that he's starting to, to break. And he said, Entreat the Lord, in verse 28, that there may be no more mighty thundering of, and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were struck for the barley was in the head and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the, and the spelt were not struck for they were late crops. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands on the Lord then the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder and ceased, he, he sinned yet more. He sinned yet more. That sounds like some of you guys. Just kidding. And he hardened his heart. Sounds like me. And he hardened his heart and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And so Moses even warned him. He said, you're going to harden your heart again. And, of course, he did. As soon as the trouble went away, he did. And that, that's oftentimes how we live our lives, right? It's a picture of, of, you know, of sin and how sin affects us. 
and, and sometimes we we repent. And this is not godly repentance that that Pharaoh is expect is is experiencing here. And there, there's a big difference, right? Everybody in jail is sorry that they got caught, but not necessarily sorry that they did it. Sometimes we're sorry for how it affects us, but we're not sorry that we did it. We're not our hearts not broken. For what we did, true repentance is to turn 180 degrees and not do it anymore. To, to not want to do it. To repent says, I'm going to turn from my sin and stop doing those things. But this is not true repentance at all. In chapter 10, it says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may so, show these signs of mine before them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your sons' sons the mighty things that I have done. So highlight verse number 2. That you may tell in the hearing of your sons, your sons, and the, and the things that I have done in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And so God has this most amazing um, plan for, 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 for passing the gospel on from generation to generation. And it was part of his plan. It was part of his calculated plan of attack that these stories would be passed on from generation to generation and that we would share them with our children. And, and even today as Christian parents, we have the call of God to, to communicate the truth of God, to communicate the love of God. And you better make sure that, that it's coming from you and not from the TV and not from the, the, the history books and the science books and their public schools that are, that are teaching something that's false and not true. And that we're passing these these things on down to our kids, we have a responsibility. Your number one responsibility in this life is to see that your children walk with the Lord. You're, you're called to be disciples. You can't be a disciple outside your home until you're a disciple inside your home. And so having practical ways, and it was so neat the way that God set it up. Even to this day in Israel, every one of the, the seven major Jewish feasts, a huge part of the way that God designed them was that, that, that it would cause the children to ask questions. The tabernacles, they, they go out and they, they put up lean-tos outside the house and they don't sleep in the house for a week. And they all have to go out and whether it's in the front yard or they go camping, they can't sleep in the house for a week as they celebrate this feast. And, and so the, the children would say, oh, Papa, why, why are we out here building these tents today? And say, well, let me tell you, son, well, our, you know, our, our ancestors were slaves in Egypt and they left and they, they lived in tents and in the wilderness for 40 years. And they would, they would have every part of the, the celebration of the holiday was intended to, to communicate and relive and, and demonstrate a truth to the next generation. You know, our holidays are not that Well, I guess our holidays are intended to be that way. We, we don't maybe necessarily celebrate them that way, but 4th of July is intended to um, celebrate our, our, our independence and Thanksgiving and all these different holidays are, are intended for certain things in, within our country. And so, you know, and, and then we always stress that, right, as, in, as a church and as Christian people, that we make sure we understand that your children understand that Easter is, is about a day that we celebrate that Jesus rose from the grave. It's not about the Easter bunny and, and, and candy. It's about Jesus. And Christmas is about a day where we celebrate Jesus's birthday. And so no doubt God set those up. In Psalm 1, it's one, 127. The psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. 
Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. They, they shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. So our society sometimes wants to, wants to shame and shun people who have lots of kids, but that's not what God's Word says. God's Word says, blessed is the man who has a quiver full of them, who, whose quiver is full of them, and, um, and, and, and that, that children are a heritage from the Lord. And so my quiver is about to get one more arrow here pretty quick. A couple weeks. Where are we at? Verse number three. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? So Moses is going to ask Pharaoh this question. And shortly, um, Pharaoh's own men are going to ask him the same question. And, and Moses says, Let my people go that they may serve me. And that's the seventh time that, that Moses tells him to, to let his people go. Or else I will, if you refuse to let my people go, and behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the face of the earth, so that no one will be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail, and what shall eat every tree which grows up of you out of the field, and they shall fill your houses, the houses of your servants, the houses of the Egyptians, which neither you nor your fathers, nor your fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And, and he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh's servants came to him and said, How long? Same question that Moses asked. Now his servants come. How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not know that Egypt is destroyed? Like, how, how hard is your heart going to be? And, and you know what? Sin just destroys life. You guys, you guys know anybody that's an alcoholic, that's a drug addict, and... You watch them. Have you guys, has anyone ever read, just coincidentally, Angela's Ashes? Are you familiar with that story? You are? You read it? Just a heartbreaking, true story of a family in Ireland. Is it Ireland or Scotland? One of the two. And, and the father was such an alcoholic. Two of his children died from malnutrition because he took the food money and he drank it. His, it just a terrible, crazy story of self-destruction of this guy who was just the world's most amazing drunk you'd ever seen. And, and, and you think, how long? How, the destruction in your life. How stupid are you? Do you see the destruction and what this is causing? And yet what happens in those sins? They just continue, just continue to repeat them and repeat them and get to the point where, you know, and that's what they're saying. Dude, do you not see that everything we have is destroyed? How long are you going to continue this, this fight against the Hebrews and their God? And in verse 8, it says, So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Another compromise, Go serve the Lord your God. You are the ones that are going. Who, who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, We will go with our young, with our old, with our sons, with our daughters, with, with our flocks, with our herds. We will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. So, so Pharaoh's going to say, just the men, let only the men go as his, as his counselors. And then Moses says, no, we're going to go with our daughters and our wives. And he says, because we're going to have a feast. And how can we have a feast if the women don't come and cook it? Just kidding. Then he said to them, the Lord had better be with you when I let you and your, and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Now so go 
you who are men and serve the Lord, for that is what you have desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And so Pharaoh kind of made up his mind. The men can go only. Now get out of here. But the men can go. Leave the wives and the children behind. Number one, knowing the men would come back for their wives and their children. And again, another compromise that, that Satan throws in our lives. That, you know, don't, don't involve your children. Don't involve your family. Don't, you know, just, it's okay if you want to be a Christian or do this for a time. But, but don't involve, don't affect, you know, your kids. Let your kids decide. You know, and you hear that. I don't know where that philosophy comes from. And I, and I know like with the Amish, for example, the Amish have that thing built into their society where the kids are, are allowed to go into the city and into the world for a time. And then um, if, if, they, if they decide they don't want to live the rest of their life as Amish, then they, they have to be gone and they're, they're ostracized and they have no help and they're just out. But if they, if they want to come home, they're committing that, that they're now in for the rest of their life and they're going to live Amish, but they're going to let them go and decide for a while. And, you know, that's, that's not godly. It's not biblical. It's not God's intent. You know, I have people who, who, who you know, well, you know, here's the thing. For, for Christian parents, the struggle is this. You can't force your kids to be Christian. And, and by forcing God on them to some extent, you can make them bitter towards God. And, and, and then once they, they're, they're not in your house anymore and they have freedom, they're going to take that freedom, that occasion of freedom, and they're going to run with it and they're going to go completely wild. And I've seen that happen. You know, my uncle, um, wonderful, you know, uh, he, he raised his kids very strict. No TV, no soda, long dresses for the girls, pants for the, you know, just very strict, very orthodox, um, no TV, no nothing. No, no, no. And, and I watched some of the, some of my cousins just go completely off the deep end when, when they got 18 and left the house. Um, and so, yes, you have that, right? And you, you hear that. And, and maybe that's the reason why some people might think, oh, well, you know, but, but that's, that's not right either. You know, as far as, as far as I'm concerned, you know, my kids don't have to come to church. Not if, you know, they, they can go live somewhere else if they want. But, but if, if, if they want to live in my house, they're going to come to church. And, and, and there are going to be biblical rules in our house of standards of morality and things and, and trying to find that balance and, um, and trying to walk that fine line between at some point you have to present a God to them that they want to serve and they have to want to serve him for themselves. And, and so, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to, you know, let them choose whether they're coming to church or not. I don't let my kids choose whether they read their Bible or not. They have to read their Bible. Every day in my house, you read your Bible. First thing you do, you get up and you read the Bible. And if you don't, if you haven't read the Bible and you have your phone on or your, your video game on or your TV on already, and it's summer now, then, then, then it, it goes away for the rest of the day. And so they know. And is it out of obligation so that they can get on their phone or turn on their video game? Probably sometimes. But nonetheless, from, from the time they were able to read... Every day of their lives, you know, the first thing I tell them when they get up, did you read your Bible already? And if I see a phone now, did you read your Bible already? And now they have this thing they do where they read it on their phone. So even if they got their phone out and it's, their face is glowing, you know, because they're looking at their phone and I, and I catch them, hey, did you read your Bible yet? Oh, I'm, I'm, it's on, I did it on my phone. So they, they, they got slick with it. But you know what? You, 
I don't know. I just, I'm just not a fan. I'm not, I'm not in that school. I'm not in that class that we, we let our kids decide whether they're going to go to church or not. And, you know, and, and, and sometimes it happens about high school, ninth grade, 10th grade. And I see so many families and they, you know, they still come on Sunday, no kids. Oh, they didn't feel like getting up. What? They didn't feel like, what? I mean, is your hand full of hair? Because mine would be. Or pick them up by the hand. You're getting out of bed. You, you don't want to get out of bed. You're coming to church. There's no option. You're coming. As long as you want to live with me. A couple rules. I tell my kids too, they don't have to be Laker fans. They just have to find somewhere else to live. You don't have to go to church. You just have to find somewhere else to live. You don't have to read your Bible. You just have to find somewhere else to live. Because as long as you're living here, those are three mandatories. All right, we're almost out of time. Give me three more minutes and we'll rush through the end of this or we'll get to it. The the tenth one we'll, we'll, we'll take next week. In verse number 12, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land and all that hails has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land and, and of Egypt. And the Lord brought an east wind on the land all the day and all the night. And when it was morning till the east wind brought the locusts. We talked about the east wind bringing the locusts. And the locusts went up all over the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. And they were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locust as they, nor shall there be ever since. And so this is the biggest locust plague they ever had. Locusts wouldn't have been necessarily something that was completely strange to have a locust plague. But this one was of biblical proportions, as they say. And so, um, you know, you can look up. Even, even now, we've had a couple. I think 1866, um, 1951. If you Google that stuff, you'll see these... Um, you know, where they black out the sun, there's so many locusts. And they, they go through an entire state, and, and there is nothing that is green left when they're done. They eat absolutely everything and destroy absolutely everything. And so this locust plague would have been of biblical proportions. There would have been nothing green left. There would have been absolutely nothing left in Egypt that, that was worth anything of, of any vegetation by the time they were, they were gone. Again, locust is, um, and I was going to get into it, but I'm not now. I ran out of time. But you can make a note there. Revelation chapter nine is is the locust plague in in the book of Revelation. The in in Revelation, what's described as locust? The, these are actual bugs. You know, people you know talk about what kind of locust they were, and they get into the you know whatever that is the as the entomology of of this particular bug. You know, I don't care. It was a locust. It was a bug. It ate stuff. Um, the the ones in um, the book of Revelation are described as locusts, but they're they're not they're they're not bugs. They're they're demons. It's a demonic horde that is released upon planet Earth um, in Revelation chapter nine, but a parallel to this plague. And then he goes on in in verse number. 16 and it says then pharaoh called for moses and aaron and said i have sinned against the lord i was i was like did i already read that yeah this is the second time he said it sinned against the lord your god and against you now therefore please forgive my sin only this once (laughs) he's so crazy make the make make the plagues go away tomorrow Uh, just forgive thy sin this once just once like why not go for it but he wouldn't do it but again it's a picture of us it's a picture of our flesh it's a picture of how sin affects us so negatively and how we make such crazy, dumb decisions based on addictions and sins. And, um, you know, 
and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. Only this death. So he went out from Pharaoh to, and entreated the Lord. And the Lord returned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea and remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children of Israel go. Don't you think there was a couple like tuna in the, in the Mediterranean Sea that were swimming around like Christian tuna and just coincidentally, Lord, you know, it'd be really nice if we could get some steaks and some locust steaks and some really good food this day. And all of a sudden all these locusts just enter the, the Red Sea and the tuna start praising Jesus and going crazy as they had just this amazing. Imagine what the fish were doing that day. And they were eating these. That was a meal. And then it says in verse number 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may be felt. So the ninth and the tenth, I think, were two of the most affrontal um, plagues that God gave. And so the, the, the number one deity that was worshipped in Egypt was Ra. And you'll hear that term even now in the cartoons, the movies, the commercials. Anything to do with Israel, I mean Egypt, it's, it's the god Ra. And, and because Pharaoh himself was a form of Ra, and he was a, a manifestation of the e- Egyptian god Ra, which was represented, anybody want to take a guess, by the, the sun. He was the sun god. And so this, this sun god that, that was the most powerful Egyptian god is now being defeated and challenged by God. And there's going to come a darkness over the land, and Ra is going to be, and, and it would have been very embarrassing and, and very dominant over Pharaoh himself that the sun wouldn't shine and forbear for, for these days. And it says, so they did not see one another. They did not see one another. I mean, this was like, have you guys ever been in, in, in absolute darkness? You, you got to be like in a cave somewhere. You got to be, you know, somewhere where you're, you're underground a certain depth and, and you're so far removed from any light that when you turn all the lights off, you, you can't see your hand in front of your face. And um, there's a certain darkness here that's described. It's eerie, right? And, and, and when, whenever you do that, what happens is it's very difficult to judge time when, when you're in those situations. And when you turn the lights off, and, and, and they will do experience and they'll turn the lights off in, in utter darkness for one minute, for five minutes. And then they'll ask them, how long were the lights off? How long? And it's always ten times as long as what it really was because it feels like an eternity when, when you're in that situation of utter darkness. You know, you know what's crazy? You, you know what one of the descriptions of hell is utter darkness. Now, you would think it's kind of contradictory in, in scientific terms that um, it's a lake of fire because fire produces light. But hell is described in the Bible as absolute and utter darkness. So you will spend all of eternity in absolute darkness. Can't not see another soul. You will not interact with another person for all of eternity. You won't be able to see your hand in front of your face. And, and there'll be a... a, a uh, a lake of fire that will burn for all of eternity. A very scary, but yet biblical and true description of what hell is. And so in verse number 22, and Mo- oh, I'm sorry, let's go 23. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Crazy, right? And Pharaoh called to Moses and said, go serve the Lord only. Let your flocks and your herds be kept back and let your little ones also be kept with you. So again, you, you guys can make the, the connection to, to this other compromise. 
So Pharaoh has gone through the, the litany of different compromises. And now he says, okay, okay, you can take the women and the children. Because last, last plague he said, no women and children, just men. So now he says, okay, okay, you can take the women and the children, but don't take your livestock. What, what is one of the things that livestock represent for, for these people? They represent in biblical times, and in a lot of cultures they represent what? Wealth. That's, that's their money. They don't have dollar-dollar bills. They have goats. So, um, so, but, you know, leave your wealth. Don't, don't bring your wealth into this Christianity. Don't bring, you know, don't, don't give. Don't sacrifice. Don't invest. Don't, don't let it consume your, your financial part of your life. Another lie of Satan and another deception here where, you know, but don't take your possessions. Don't take your things. Don't let your things be affected by your Christianity. Don't let your stuff you know, keep that stuff important and keep it back and don't give it also and offer it unto the Lord. And in verse 25, but Moses said, you must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind for we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. And so, no, we're taking them all and, and not one hoof. And some of these, which is a biblical principle of our wealth and our finances, some of these are dedicated unto the Lord. Some of these um, are, are, are given unto the Lord. And he said he doesn't really know what the Lord was going to require. And then it says in verse 27, and here you have it, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. And so this is the, where the, the Hebrew word changes from Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And now it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you'll, you, you'll see that phrase all the way through Pharaoh, 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 Pharaoh. And now the Lord hardens his heart. And so God didn't, again, we've already been through this. God didn't do something that was unfair where he, he hardened a guy's heart and made him say no to God and then judged him for saying no. He, he only established a decision that, that, that Pharaoh had made and made and made and made. Do you remember the Canaanites? The, the, those, the, the nation of Israel was told to wipe out and kill every man, woman, and child of the Canaanites. And, and, and everybody cries foul, terrible. But, but, but God, for 400 years... He says, you guys had to stay in Egypt for 400 years because the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet fulfilled. And for 400 years, God poured out his mercy and his grace and his opportunity upon the Canaanites. And the Canaanites hardened their hearts, hardened their hearts, hardened their hearts, hardened their hearts. And then God just established a decision that they made. And that's how people go to hell. God doesn't send anybody to hell. What God does is he works, he works, he works. The Bible says in Hebrews that you literally have to trample over the blood of Jesus to get to hell. And it comes, there comes a point where all God does is he honors somebody's choice to not, not be in the presence, not have God in their lives, not have and not be with the Lord forever. And at some point, God establishes and God honors somebody's request to continue to deny God all the way through. And he's, he's, he's not going to force somebody. He's, gonna, he's just going to honor their request at some point. And so here with Pharaoh, God hardened his heart. And establish that decision. I believe, you know, again, a, a New Testament spiritual truth that applies here is that this is, is where the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was committed. And so Moses said, you have spoken well. I will never see your face again. Next week, the 10th plague. Let's stand. 
Hey, we have one song. We're going to actually do, um, is it ready or not? Yeah, let's just do it. I was gonna, we didn't get to it. I was hoping to get to it. We're going to do Passover because of Passover. So we want to just wait. Well, let's just do it. Why not? Um, you guys want to close us in a song? Hey, I'm going to give you guys an opportunity during this last song. We'll just have one song, but um, next week, we'll probably do it again next week because next week we are going to be studying Passover and we're going to be studying um, where the, the Passover started and why, um, what Jesus was celebrating with his disciples and, and all those things. And so uh, we did set up communion for tonight. So we're just going to go ahead and uh, receive communion. Just have one song. So again, as you guys know, our, our heart, our intention during this time is that you just, just spend this time to seek the Lord. And communion is a time of two things very simply. Number one, Jesus said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So the number one thing that we do when we receive communion is we remember Jesus and we remember the price that he paid with a thankful heart. And the second thing the Apostle Paul tells us to do as we receive communion is to reflect and put up a mirror in our lives and and, and examine our own hearts and see if there be any wickedness in us. And King David said, create in me a new heart, God. King David said, check my heart, examine my heart, O Lord, and see if there's any wickedness against you. And so I, I think it's also a time that not only we do it in remembrance and thankfulness to Jesus, but a time where we just talk to God and say, God, is there something in my life that you want to deal with? Is there something in my life that's sin that you want to remove? Is there unrepentant sin in my life? Is there, is there sin in my life that's sins of omission where you've called me to go out and step out or do or give or be and I haven't been obedient yet? Would you remind me? Would you speak to me? Would you help me? And, and just, you got one song. So, so we're going to encourage you just to take the bread and the cup, go back to your seat and spend some time seeking the Lord. We take, obviously, we take the bread first because that's the way Jesus did it. And then the cup, the bread representing the body of Jesus and the cup representing the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Father God, we thank you so much for your body um, that was broken for us. And we, we thank you for this cup, which represents your, I'm sorry, we thank you for this bread, which represents your, cu- your body broken for us. We thank you for this cup, Lord Jesus, which represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for the remission of sins. And Jesus, the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And God, we do this in remembrance of you, Jesus in remembrance of that faithful day as you began that trek down the Via Dolorosa to the place of the, of the cross of Calvary of Golgotha where you would have nails put through your hands and your feet and a spear jabbed into your side as you would suffer and die and as you would take upon the sins of this world upon your shoulders and that and the, and the, the wrath of God would be poured out upon you for us so that you could build a bridge that you could become the propitiation, the substitute for me and for us who deserve to be on that cross, who deserve, or because of our sins, to pay that price, but you paid it for us. And so, Jesus, as we receive communion tonight, we pray, Father, that uh, we would examine our own hearts, that we would get right with you, Lord, in just a time of self-reflection and, and humility. And, and God, that, that you, you, you would bless this time as we, as we worship you in communion. In Jesus' name, amen.